welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Update on Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as lymphoma organizations. And um, it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 209 participants on the program today. So you're a very large group. And um, we have, um, and you're from all over the United States. You're from rural areas, from um, suburban areas, or urban areas, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Israel, Netherlands, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. Um, and today's program is supported by um, the Celgene Corporation, Novartis Oncology, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have on the program today just wonderful faculty, and our first speaker, our speaker, our main speaker today, actually, is Dr. David Strauss. Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center, and he's also a professor of clinical medicine while Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Strauss is going to be addressing Main topics, um, overview of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, including grading and staging, current treatment options, emerging treatment approaches, treatment options for elapsed or refractory um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, um, updates on clinical trials, suggestions and tips to manage symptoms and side effects, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my most esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. <clears throat> uh, this afternoon I'll be discussing a very large topic, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, this is the most common non-Hodgkin lymphoma, comprising about 25% of cases. However, it is not a single entity. In general, it's called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma because the cancer cells are larger than normal lymphocytes and have a primitive, rather primitive appearance under the microscope, probably a reflection of their fairly rapid growth in contrast to some of the slower-growing or low-grade B-cell lymphomas. It is not a single entity. Uh, the most common, the, the most frequent type is what's called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified. But there are a number of other subtypes that have a little bit different features and presentations, including T-cell rich B-cell lymphoma, in which there's an admixture of normal T lymphocytes as well as the malignant B lymphocytes primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, which involves the mediastinum, the area in the center of the chest, 
in the chest cavity between the lungs, intravascular or in uh, usually in arteries, uh, a large cell lymphoma, lymphomatoid granulomatosis, which commonly involves lung and is associated with Epstein-Barr virus, primary uh, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma involving the brain or CNS, primary cutaneous diffuse large B-cell lymphoma leg type, which involves the skin of the leg and is seen in older uh, patients, gray zone lymphoma, which under the microscope has features of both uh, under the microscope of Hodgkin lymphoma as well as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and is considered to be a non-Hodgkin lymphoma rather than Hodgkin lymphoma. And uh, there are diffuse large B-cell lymphomas associated with HIV infection. And the diagnosis of an aggressive B-cell lymphoma or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the setting of an individual with an, a with an HIV infection constitutes a diagnosis of AIDS. Um, in addition, there are, in addition to cases that at diagnosis have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, other initially slowing, grow, slowly, more slowly growing lymphomas can undergo a number of mutations which will cause them to grow faster, and if a biopsy is done, it can look like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This is called transformation, uh, and that among the lymphomas that can do this are follicular B-cell lymphomas, marginal zone lymphomas, and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. The transformation in that disease is called Richter's transformation. So this is the same underlying low-grade lymphoma, but it just appears differently because it's growing faster, and we often treat it in the same way as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma at time of diagnosis. There are uh, different cells of origin of uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. There are different subtypes of B-cells. B-lymphocytes are, are uh, malignant cells derived from uh, B-lymphocytes, which are uh, cells that uh, normally develop into cells called plasma cells that go to the bone marrow and produce proteins called immune globulins or antibodies which are one of the ways that the body helps clear infections. Uh, the lymphocyte system of B lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, and natural killer cells are one of the way, major uh, ways that the body has to combat infections normally. Um, also, uh, there are other fast-growing lymphomas that are related to and are sometimes classified as diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. Um, there is a type that has features under the microscope somewhat like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and somewhat like another aggressive B-cell lymphoma called Burkitt's lymphoma. The um, cells of origin uh, of, uh, B cell, of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are divided into two ca categories. 
those that are malignancies of cells from the germinal centers of follicles in normal lymph nodes, and those are called GCB or germinal center type, and then others of different lymphocytes not of that type that are called non-GCB type. Uh, normally, in a lymph node, uh, in a normal lymph node, lymphocytes are sort of organized in a cir circular pattern that are called follicles, and in the center are dividing cells, and these are called the germinal centers. So there's GCB and non-GCB types. So it's a little complicated, but uh, you know, as I say, as a total entity, it's about 25% of non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Uh, for staging, we use, uh, in all lymphomas, modifications of the Ann Arbor staging classification, which has been updated uh, several times and was originally designed uh, for Hodgkin lymphoma in an era many years ago when we treated things somewhat differently, but we still use it with some modifications. So this... Um, classification divides the body in half by the diaphragm, which is the muscle that divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. So this sort of divides the body in half. So upper body and lower body uh, above or below the diaphragm. And there are four stages. Uh, stage one is disease in a single lymph node or in non-Hodgkin lymphomas and really rarely in Hodgkin lymphoma, you can have a single location in a site that's not a lymph node, such as the thyroid gland, the stomach, the skin, the bone, or other places. Uh, this is called stage 1E. So stage 1 would be in lymph nodes. Stage 1E would be in a site that's not a lymph node. Uh, stage 2 would be lymph nodes and or spleen. Spleen was declared to be a lymph node in the staging system. It is mostly comprised of lymphocytes, but it's not exactly a lymph node. But nevertheless, it's considered to be such in staging. So lymph nodes and or spleen above or below the diaphragm, but not both, would be stage two. Uh, for example, uh, lymph nodes under the arm and in the neck or in the groin and in the spleen. Stage three is disease in lymph nodes and or spleen above and below the diaphragm, such as groin nodes and neck nodes. And stage four is disease in lymph nodes and sites that are not lymph nodes, extranodal sites, different organs. Uh, you can be A, which means that you have no symptoms, and there are symptoms that are really more associated with Hodgkin lymphoma and sometimes really are not even used in the staging, which include fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. So 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B, 4A, 4B. So some people have dispensed with B symptoms because they are relatively rare in non-Hodgkin lymphomas and much more common in Hodgkin lymphoma. So um, the, this comprises about 25% of the non-Hodgkin lymphomas. About 60% of cases are stage 3 and 4, 3 or 4 uh, at diagnosis, and about 40% are stage 1, 1E, or 2. Uh, 
This is a blood cancer, like all lymphomas. It's not a solid tumor, so it's a it's a uh, it's a uh, malignancy that involves blood cells called lymphocytes that circulate around the body. So it does not start in a particular organ and then spread or metastasize from there. We don't think about the disease spreading because it is usually spread from the get-go. And even if it seems to be in a single site, it still could show up in another site indicating at a later time that there was disease at diagnosis below the level of detection that eventually declared itself. So the treatment for this is systemic, with that means uh, you get something that gets to it wherever it is, uh, which includes chemotherapy, immune therapy, targeted therapies, and, and so on. Radiation therapy is used sometimes for local control. So the treatment, uh, it has been very difficult to improve on the standard treatment for this disease. And for many years, we've been getting very good results with combination chemotherapy called CHOP, which stands for cyclophosphamide, hydroxyl donorubicin or doxorubicin or adriamycin, oncovin or vincristin, and prednisone, CHOP. This uh, combination has been used for 40 years. For the last 20 years, we have added antibody treatment with a antibody called rituximab. Um, this is a biological product. It is a biotechnology product, and it is a protein, a biologic product that is part mouse and part human. It is directed against a receptor on the surface of the malignant cells as well as normal B cells called CD20, and its attachment causes the cells to reprogram and die faster than they would ordinarily, um, and also calls into play body's immune defenses. Uh, combined with chemotherapy, this, this greatly improved the uh, outcomes, uh, length of remission, cures, and even survival. So we call this uh, chemoimmunotherapy, and this is the standard treatment for this lymphoma. Um, so for stage three and four, uh, RCHOP is the standard treatment. Uh, it is given uh, every three weeks, usually the rituximab, and three of the chemotherapy drugs, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristin, are given together on day one. Prednisone, which is a steroid uh, pill, is given for five days, and it's usually repeated every three weeks for approximately six weeks. Um, there have been attempts to improve on results with this by adding other drugs to this regimen, including uh, abrutinib, which is a targeted therapy, small molecule targeted treatment that targets uh, pathways in lymphoma cells that drive the lymphoma and, and also cause, it, cause lymphoma cells to die and is used in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. 
uh, lenalidomide, which is an immune-modulating drug, or IMID, and uh, bortezomib, which is a newer chemotherapy drug that's called a pro, uh, proteasome inhibitor. Addition of these drugs to RCHOP has not really resulted in, in really significantly improved results. Another regimen that has been used um, uh, and is also active is a modification of this CHOP regimen using rituximab and giving uh, drugs by continuous infusion through the vein for four days, continuously 96 hours. And the, the drugs that are given in this way, in this regimen, are cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristine. Rituximab is usually started on the first day, and on the fifth day, after the 96 hours, after the four days, cyclophosphamide is given just by, you know, quick infusion into the vein, the same way that RCHOP is given. Uh, this regimen uh, was compared to RCHOP in a very large uh, trial uh, conducted through the United States-U.S. Uh, uh, intergroup, which are uh, clinical trials group uh, groups that are funded by the National Cancer Institute. And uh, overall, there was no advantage to the dosage to uh, EPOC with rituximab, E-P-O-C-H, EPOC. Uh, but in some subsets of aggressive lymphomas, uh, there is some suggestion that it may be a bit better. And so for the aggressive, very fast-growing, high-grade lymphomas, this is often employed. And there are other high-dose regimens uh, that we don't usually use at Memorial that have also, also used, including hypersevad and uh, Codoxam IVAC, which we don't usually use. So um, for patients who relapse, or meaning that the disease comes, well, we try to achieve a, what we call a complete remission by these chemotherapy regimens. Both e e EPOC and RCHOP are given uh, for usually in the U.S. for six treatments. Sometimes in Europe, they went with eight treatments. At the end of uh, at the end of uh, treatment. We use the PET scan as a real uh, good indicator for the uh, for the uh, robustness of the response. PET scan is a nuclear medicine scan, which uh, it's called positron emission te uh, tomography or PET, which uses a radioactively labeled analog of glucose, which is the building block for sugar metabolism in all living cells, plants and animals and everything, uh, this analog of glucose is labeled with uh, radioactive fluorine, and it's injected. It gets into the tumor cells, but it sort of hangs up there. It's not further broken down. So you can do a nuclear medicine scan and see what areas are involved. It's combined with a uh, uh, CAT scan, which is a type of X-ray that makes uh, computer-generated X-ray pictures of your body like slices of a salami. And the two together, the X-ray CT scan and the PET scan, uh, can show very well what areas are involved, 
before we begin treatment. If the PET scan becomes negative at the end of treatment, that's very predictive of a low likelihood of recurrence, maybe 10% or less. On the other hand, a positive PET scan is not so informative because there are many things that can light up on a PET scan that are not the cancer. So it picks up the cancer very well, but it doesn't exclude things that are not cancer. So a negative PET scan is really the gold standard for what we call a complete remission. So patients who do not achieve that, you know, who don't get a good enough response or who do get a complete response and then recur, those are called relapse patients, there are, uh, there are patients where that occurs. Um, so there are a number of approaches for such patients. For many years, we've been using high-dose chemotherapy, uh, what we call autologous stem cell transplantation, uh, in conjunction with chemotherapy to get patients back into a complete remission. Optimally, they, they are PET negative at the end of treatment, they relapse, and we want to get them back, if possible, at the end of some chemotherapy to a state where they're PET negative again, and then proceed with the high-dose chemotherapy program which uh, is really not an organ transplant because uh, what is done is your cells that produce blood in your bone marrow can be kicked out into the blood collected and doses of chemotherapy higher than could be tolerated ordinarily can be given and then these cells given back after you get the high-dose chemotherapy. So if you go give these doses without giving back the cells that produce blood, you know, you could wipe out the production of blood, but this reconstitutes it. So this is what's called uh, autologous stem cell transplant. It's from your own cells, and uh, it's really, I think, the way to think about it is high-dose chemotherapy with the support of your own blood-producing or stem cells. So this is used for younger and fit patients. Um, this is a disease of middle-aged and older people. If you take 100 people and rank them according to age, the middle guy would probably be age 60. So there are patients who are particularly 70 and older who really aren't really fit enough to have that type of program. And so there are other uh, less... Uh, intensive chemotherapy regimens that we give, an example being uh, rituximab, gemcitabine, and um, uh, oxaplatin. Um, some patients can't get uh, doxorubicin, the H and RCHOP, and there are variations of RCHOP substituting other drugs for the doxorubicin. In addition, uh, there are a number of other uh, types of drugs uh, that are given as well as chemotherapy for relapsed and refractory patients, including targeted therapies like abrutinib, uh, which is actually not used that much for uh, um, for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. There are the PI3 kinase inhibitors. 
These are small molecules that are well absorbed by mouth and can block pathways that drive the growth of the cells. Um, and recently, uh, there are Im immune therapies in addition to the antibody therapy with rituximab. One of these, and I'm sure you've all heard about because it's been in the news uh, a lot, are the so-called CAR T-cells. These are chimeric antigen T-cells, which are genetically engineered cells of your normal T-cells in which uh, a receptor uh, for uh, is genetically put into your cells in a in in a cell culture or a petri dish type of uh, setup, and these are inserted by viruses genetically so that the product is your T cells grown up with this receptor stuck in. This receptor will bind to either CD20, which I mentioned for rituximab, or other antigens, other receptors on the surface of the tumor cells. The one that's used most commonly is called CD19. And this attaches the T lymphocytes, which can kill the tumor cells directly onto the cells and enhance the immune effect in killing the cells. This has gotten a lot of uh, uh, publicity. There are now uh, two products, one by Novartis, one by Kite, which are commercially available. Uh, the cells are taken out. They're grown up, uh, usually in a laboratory, to enough cells, which can take two to four weeks, and then they're given back to you. Uh, and they attack the tumor cells, and this has resulted. Uh, this is uh, these two uh, agents that I mentioned are approved by the FDA for uh, disease that's relapsed or doesn't respond well after at least two lines prior lines of treatment. Um, so. Uh, there are newer agents which also are in clinical trials. Uh, one of them, uh, and we have uh, protocols for this open here at Memorial, is a drug called Mo Mosentuzumab, which is what's called a bispecific antibody. So this is sort of like a CAR T-cell, but the molecule, instead of attaching the receptor that binds with the tumor cells, onto a lymphocyte, there's a molecule that has one end that attaches to the T cells and the other end that attaches to the malignant cells and delivers the T cells by that way adjacent to the tumor cells so that they can kill them. This is called a bispecific antibody. This particular one uh, has uh, one end is CD20 that attaches to the tumor cells and then the other end is CD3 that attaches to the lymphocytes that can be brought to the tumor cell. So this is uh, being, uh, there, there was a presentation by Dr. Schuster at ASH, and this is a drug that has a lot of promise. There are other agents that we have uh, here at Memorial. 
we have uh, a very new one which uh inhab which inhibits the uh metabolism uh of the cells the so-called citric acid cycle in the mitochondria within the cell cytoplasm and uh can interfere with and uh kill the uh the tumor cells so this is an early stage development there are also uh, other immune drugs the so-called checkpoint inhibitors that are used in other cancers like lung cancer and hodgkin lymphoma and melanoma that are that are called checkpoint because there are inhibitors normally to the attack of your normal immune system normal t lymphocytes in your immune system to the tumor cells so these drugs can sort of unblock this and unleash the, your own immune system to destroy the tumor cells. Um, we have a trial, for example, that combines a PD-1 inhibitor with a LAG-3 inhibitor. Both of these are a different type of checkpoint inhibitors to attack the tumor cells. These are clinical trials in uh, early development. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm running a little long. I mean, I have a, I have a very big uh, assignment today, but I guess we can talk a little bit about uh, side effects and quality of life. I guess I can talk about rituximab in particular, uh, RCHOP. Uh, with rituximab, there are what are called infusion reactions uh, that occur during the uh, during the infusion of rituximab, which is usually given over a period of time. The first treatment is usually given very slowly over six to eight hours because these infusion reactions tend to occur with the first treatment and are less likely to occur with subsequent treatments uh, or if they do occur to be milder. So the first one is given very slowly and these include fevers, rash, chills, sometimes wheezing like with asthma. Uh, we give the first treatment with the chemotherapy very slowly, the rituximab over six to eight hours, covered with anti by antihistamines and steroids, which can attenuate these effects. If you start to get a reaction during the first treatment, you might interrupt the uh, treatment to give antihistamines and steroids and then resume it. We can usually get it in. And then subsequent treatments are less likely to have this, so it's usually just given with the chemotherapy over one or two hours. Um, rituximab, uh, the chemotherapy drugs, I mean, can cause lowering of the blood counts. The most common one with RCHOP are white blood cells called granulocytes. They're a type of white blood cell different from lymphocytes, and they are, are very important protection against bacterial infections. So that uh, if you have a low granulocyte count, that type of white, of white blood cell, neutrophil count, uh, you may be prone to infection. But we have uh, a drug called uh, Nupagen or Nulasta, Philgrastum is the, uh, is the generic name, uh, which can be given that uh, reduce the effect on lowering of the white blood cells and speed their recovery. So we often we usually give uh, RCHOP with uh, with uh, Nulasta, which is a form of this drug that lasts for two weeks, 
blood level. Nupagen is given daily because it's the, a formulation of the drug that only lasts for a short time. And uh, I think you probably all have seen on television uh, advertisements for OnPro, which is an on-body device, which is loaded with the Nulasta. Nulasta has to be given at least 24 hours after the chemotherapy. So the day you get your chemotherapy, you can have this placed uh, on your arm usually, and it will be loaded with the Nulasta and give it to you automatically at home. Just deploy it 24 hours later. Um, other side effects, nausea and vomiting, we have pretty good drugs to take care of this. People can feel a little bit fatigued for a few days after the treatment, usually by the second and third week, uh, energy and fatigue, energy improves and fatigue decreases. These drugs usually do cause temporary hair loss, which is temporary and the hair grows back. Um, Doxorubicin, uh, the H in CHOP, has some potential to damage the heart, which is rare with the doses that are given. And we always check uh, your heart function before we start it. Vincristine can cause numbness and tingling in the fingers and toes. We sometimes reduce the dose or omit it if necessary without really affecting the outcome. And it, we give you drugs to help with constipation, nausea, vomiting, and other things at home. So we are, you know, we've been using this common, we've been using CHOP for 40 years, we've been using RCHOP for 20 years. Almost all oncologists have a lot of experience with it, and we, we get patients through this. And then the goal is to get you into a complete remission, hopefully not have it come back, and that is the goal of the first treatment. So with that, I'm not too far beyond the 30 minutes that I've been assigned, and I guess we could open it up for questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Strauss. That was really, really quite the tour de force and really excellent, really outstanding and covering all the topics and, and just really um, in such detail. So I think that's really helpful to our participants. And um, we're going to take questions in about two minutes. I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care before we take questions. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide help to people with our oncology social work staff really throughout the country. Um, so we're accessible um, either online or on the telephone. So people either call us at 1-800-813-4673 or um, you can visit our website, www.cancercare.org, and you can post a question or concern. And the services that we offer are are a range of them, so I'll just go through them briefly with you. Um, we offer financial and practical assistance, so that's a, a need that many people have, and it's quite clear to people when they have those needs to call and ask for that help. Um, and that help is restricted. The financial assistance is primarily for people in the United States. All the other services are available to people no matter where they live. Um, the um, We also do um, provide support services, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers who are all master's level trained, um, really about any concerns you may have in coping with uh, large B-cell, um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or any type of cancer or lymphoma or any type of cancer at all. Um, also, um, 
to talk about yourself, to talk about a family member of concerns that you may have in terms of how you talk with them, how you talk with friends or family or, or boss, how you talk to your employer about your cancer. So all types of concerns that people may have. Um, and we also do offer lots of different support groups. A lot of people, some people like to be um, talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, but others um, really appreciate being a member of a support group. They're all facilitated by a professional oncology social worker, and they're either a telephone support group or an online support group. And the groups are for people who are caregivers, for people living with a t particular type of lymphoma um, or a particular type of cancer, they are also for people who are um, uh, young adults, older adults, middle-aged adults, really uh, for everyone, those programs. We also have a program called Cancer Care for Kids, really to help children um, understand when there's cancer in the family. So that's a snapshot of some of our programs. We also have many of these type of workshops that you'll be getting, you've gotten information about and will continue to. So now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Norma. Um, to, of course, bring Dr. Strauss on board for these, and I'm going to ask Norma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, so this is your chance to really ask a question, of course, um, and uh, so I'm going to ask Norma to tell you how to do that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Joan B. Your line is open. Uh, yes, I had follicular, trans, uh, follicular lymphoma that transformed to large diffuse and was treated uh, with chemotherapy and uh, got a remission. And I wonder, is it possible for the follicular lymphoma, which I understand I still have underlying, to transform again and the large diffuse to come back. That's a good question. That's, that's an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked it because I think it's something that it's good to talk about. Um, so we treat uh, transformation to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and understand that this is really the same follicular lymphoma that just looks different because it's growing faster. We use uh, the same treatment that we use for uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma at time of diagnosis, namely RCHOP is pretty much the standard treatment. There are uh, several possibilities uh, with this treatment. Um, usually, uh, you will respond uh, well to this, and percentages of complete remission are very high, just like in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I mean, there's a slight chance that it won't work, as there is even when uh, the large B-cell lymphoma is diagnosed, uh, you know, you know, is... It presents at diagnosis. Um, you can, you could come back with the aggressive form, possible, and that would require other treatment. But more often, uh, if it comes back, it might come back as the low-grade form. You might recur as diffuse, as a, a, a lymphocyte, as um, 
follicular B-cell lymphoma, in which case, you know, the, the treatment approach depends on the nature of the recurrence. Sometimes, as with follicular B-cell lymphoma or other so-called low-grade B-cell lymphomas, it's not necessary to treat necessarily at at uh, at relapse. Other times, other treatments uh, that are uh, there are many treatments for uh, relapse follicular B cell lymphoma, and whether you know it's sort of you kind of go back to the uh, programs that are used for follicular B cell lymphoma, which at times can can include just observing. Thank you. Thanks. I hope that helps, and uh, that's wonderful uh, addressing that question. Um, and uh, we hope you'll take that back to your dream healthcare team, and um, and that that will be this is giving more information um, with your team to utilize. Um, and um, and we have a question um, from another one of our um, from an online participant now. Um, Um, what new therapy options are currently or soon to be available for relapse um, diffuse large B cell lymphoma patients who want to avoid stem cell transplant or other new, new therapy? Oh yeah, there there are many. There I mentioned a few of them. Uh, there is a uh, antibody drug conjugate called polituzumab, uh, which is a antibody like rituximab. Uh, attached to a chemotherapy drug, uh, I believe it has been approved. I think for for uh, follicular lymphoma and diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Uh, there are targeted agents. Uh, there are the so-called PI3 kinase inhibitors. Another small molecule oral drugs that are also active. Um, I mentioned the bispecific antibodies. I don't think any of them are FDA-approved as yet, but there are many clinical trials, uh, including the mozanituzumab, uh, which is uh, one end attaching to the tumor cells, one end attaching to the T lymphocytes uh, for uh, real, for uh, transformed. Lymphoma CAR T cells are also used for transformed or for uh, other uh, or for diffuse large B cell lymphoma after two lines of treatment. Um, there are and there are chemotherapy options such as gemcitabine and oxaliplatin combined with rituximab. So there are many there are many treatment options for patients who relapse. Uh, again, for younger patients, we've had good results, even with very sustained remissions and possibly cures, with high-dose chemotherapy, the so-called autologous stem cell transplantation that I men mentioned earlier, which is usually best done uh, after the first line of treatment, e either without a good response to that or a relapse after that. So there are many many treatment options, and many clinical trials. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And another question from one of our online participants. Um, I was recently diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, but I also have heart problems. 
Can my regimen not include doxorubicin since it damages my heart more? And, and, and actually, in general, are there restrictions because of the heart problems? Another excellent question. Uh, that is a challenge because doxorubicin is a um, you know a, a one of the cornerstones of the RCHOP regimen. But recently, the, uh, there is a regimen which uh, substitutes another chemotherapy drug that doesn't have uh, problems with the heart called gemcitabine. Uh, for doxorubicin in the CHOP regimen. So this is called RG for gemcitabine, C for cyclophosphamide, V for acovinavirin, crystin, and prednisone. So that, uh, you know, there isn't as much data for that as there is for RCHOP, but that has given very good results in a number of patients. There's another combination uh, which combines rituximab with cyclophosphamide and etoposide, uh, which are given by vein and procarbazine, an oral drug, and prednisone. It's called RCEPP, RCEP. That's another regimen. So we do have alternatives as first treatment for patients who cannot receive uh, doxorubicin because of heart problems. Excellent. Thank you. So that's very important. That, that's, so for those of you on the call with these concerns, this is really important to um, I think to to know that there are other treatments out there that's important um and another online question um so um so my doctor said that my treatment is r chop Could you explain it in more detail um well again i I'll just i think you know i, I again r chop is a combination of rituximab antibody treatment with chemotherapy, CHOP. So the way it's given is rituximab is given by vein for the first treatment slowly over six to eight hours, subsequent treatments one to two hours, along with cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristin, which are given by short infusion, just sort of pushed it, you know, given shortly, you know, over a short period of time through the vein. And then uh, prednisone is given for five days. It's a pill that you take home with you. Uh, we generally also use Nulasta, which will somewhat lessen the likelihood of a low granulocyte white blood cell count, which could predispose to infection. And this is generally given outpatient uh, uh, every three weeks. Uh, and we we generally treat for six cycles. So that's like uh, 18 uh, weeks or four and a half months. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and the question of um, what happens if, um, if if I develop a fever during chemotherapy cycle? Well, that's another excellent question. These are very good questions. We have a very, really, very impressed with the audience. Um, yeah, that's a very important question. Um, one of the, the major side effects, one of the major side effects of CHOP type chemotherapy is lowering of the white blood cells. So red blood cells can cause anemia, platelets protect against bleeding. Sometimes transfusions are given for that. That's very unusual with our CHOP. But lowering of the white cells, the granulocytes, is, 
is more common. Again, giving Nulasta or Nupagen on pro can reduce the possibility of this, but we always tell patients that if you have a fever, which we de we define as 38 degrees centigrade, which is 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, if you develop a fever with that in between your treatments, you should call and probably be seen uh, for this. And if you're, you know, if you have a fever, they will in the emergency room or urgent care center. They'll check your. Uh, white blood cells and may bring you into the hospital for antibiotics. Uh, there may or may not be an infection identified, but nevertheless, given that until your blood counts recover, which is usually a brief period of time. But yes, it is very important that if you run a fever, a significant fever, 100.4 or greater, that you call your doctor. That is an important question because it's um, uh, it's really very important. Um, and um, another question. So this one. Um, so I've been feeling extremely tired since starting treatment. What can I do? Yeah, that's another good question, and that's a common side effect, and it's really variable. Uh, you know, I think it's it's some people tolerate it better than others. Some people, for example, will continue to work. I mean, usually work schedule and life schedule is kind of disrupted by the, you know, for the periods you have to come in for your treatments. Um, and I think that the level of your activities have to be sort of determined by how you feel. So if you're very tired, there's no reason that you should push yourself. On the other hand, if you can do whatever you feel up to doing, uh, there's really no restriction. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't go bungee jumping, but, you know, outside of that, I think, you know, you can do whatever you feel up to doing. I mean, usually the fatigue is usually the first week or so, and usually less so in the second and third week. But I think you just have to gauge your activities uh, by how you feel. I do think that it's good if you are feeling up to it to do some exercise and push yourself a little bit, but not too much. But I think, you know, the big objective is to do whatever it takes to just get through this period of four and a half months of treatment and, uh, you know, do what you need to do. There's no there's no particular fix for that problem. I mean, if you're anemic, then you might need a transfusion. That's usually not the cause of this, but it's helpful for people to hear that it is common and it happens, and and each person um, then will work with their healthcare team to figure out how to, as you say, get through it during that period of time. It's very helpful. Um, so. Um, so question um so if this is a question what is IPI score my doctor mentioned that this score can have large effect on how um my disease will be treated yeah well that is a a score that has been developed of clinical features, age, performance status, which is how well you function, 
um, number of no, number of sites, uh, LDH, which is a marker for uh, size of disease and growth and other factors. And that's used really more in clinical trials where, you know, patients can be on the average predicted to have better or worse outcomes. But insofar as uh, treatment decisions on how you're treated, not so important. I mean, again, the standard treatment is RCHOP and variations of RCHOP, regardless, really, of the performance status. Thank you. Thanks. And we have a question from one of our telephone callers. um, Mary Jo F., your line is open. Um, Well, the um, fatigue question intrigued me because what if a person with – Epilepsy is on um, seizure meds, and um, does the RCHOP is that still an option for people who are on seizure meds? Yeah, I am not really, I'm not aware of particular interactions, but that's a very important question because there are interactions of drugs, and for example, I am skeptical about using supplements that are not really FDA, you know, that are not under the, they're not uh, FDA drugs over the counter because a lot of these have not been, the toxicity and interactions have not been tested. So your doctor usually works with a pharmacist and they will, you know, when you, when you take the chemotherapy, you know, they will give you, talk about interactions with, potential interactions with some of the drugs you're taking. And, you know, you may have to make a switch or eliminate one or so on. I'm, uh, you know, in general, I'm not aware of uh, really interactions with anti-seizure medicines uh, with uh, the usual chemotherapy drugs. That asks an excellent question just because it raises the whole issue of um, taking things like um, that are over-the-counter, if you could address that. I mean, it's, it's a question that comes up a lot in the programs because people often take over-the-counter things but don't tell the doctor. Maybe they'll tell them about the prescriptions but not about the over-the-counter. So that's sometimes more of a concern sometimes. Yeah, I think it's a real problem. I mean, Senator Harkin and Senator Hatch uh, uh, passed legislation declaring that supplements – uh, for example, plant uh, extracts and so on, natural products are not drugs and therefore shouldn't be under the purview of the FDA. And the problem with that is that really everything's a drug. I mean, everything you take, everything you put in your mouth is a drug in a way. It ha- it'll have some effects on your body. And absent FDA scrutiny, you know, there's no testing of these drugs to know if what they're toxic, you know, if they have side effects and if they interact with other drugs. So that I think it's very important that you be very careful about going to a health food store and just picking something off the counter. I mean, for one thing, if these drugs are not under FDA supervision, so the formulation of them, you don't really know what you're getting. 
I mean, they could be sawdust. I mean, there's really no control over that. And sometimes we found that drugs that have been tried in clinical trials, uh, that if they actually do the type of testing they do on quote-unquote drugs, they have significant side effects, maybe with major things that, you know, cause interactions, like, for example, the system of enzymes that metabolize a lot of drugs in the liver. So, you know, I think it's very, you have to be very careful about supplements. I mean, we have an integrative medicine service here at Memorial Hospital, and we've had a herbal formulary on our website, uh, which you can check, which can talk about the safety of these things. But I think we don't want you to get excessive side effects. We don't want to have any 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 interference with the uh, with the effects of your treatment on your disease. And I think that you should really review what supplements you're taking and what you should and shouldn't take with your doctor. Excellent. And in terms of people having, um, like, other health problems or what comorbid health problems, um, those actually, um, I mean, many people have them and still experience successful treatment for their um, disease. Is that correct? Or are they just going to their own? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, we're not, uh, we're not sort of drug dispensing machines. I mean, we're doctors. So I think that treatment is something that has to be done by, uh, by doctors and nurses and uh, very often in treatment, modifications have to be made based on other medical conditions or particular side effects. So, you know, what what I'm telling you about CHOP, it's not, you know, there is sort of a standard way of giving it, but that's subject to modifications as necessary during the course of your treatment. If Excellent. Um, and... Um... Uh, last question. Let me see. We have one late, uh, last question here. Um, oh, so I was diagnosed with um, um, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, and I have been experiencing night sweats. Is there anything I can do? Well, night sweats can be seen in, uh, and by night sweats, what we really consider to be night sweats, very suspicious to be related to lymphoma. Our sweats, our drenching sweats that awaken you at night and cause you to change your nightgown, T-shirt, pajamas, you know, the bed linen is soaked and so on. Um, those can be symptoms of the disease and more common with Hodgkin lymphoma. And they tend to lessen, uh, you know, with treatment and and go away. But there are many other, you know, people have sweating at night. People have hot, women can have hot flashes. They can have sweating during the day and at night. And so kind of don't know really what to do about that. I mean, uh, and it, it does, you know, if they're not typical, it's not necessarily indicative of any, you know, effect of, it may not be an effect of the tumor. And, you know, so I don't have a specific answer to that question. Certainly, if you're having drenching night sweats that are continuing, that is a matter of concern, and you know your doctors will have to follow you and check you very carefully to make sure that you're responding to the treatment properly. Excellent. 
Well, this has been a, an amazing call. I actually want to thank you, Dr. Strauss. As always, um, just really um, incredible um, uh, presentation, and also um, a lot of questions, a lot of really excellent questions. Dr. Strauss pointed out these are really um, this is a very amazing audience. <laughs> so we have a great speaker and a great audience as well, great participants, um, and. Um, I know there are still questions in queue, and um, I just wanted to, in concluding, um, you know, this is an hour workshop, and that in planning a program like this, we do recognize that you have many, many questions that go far beyond the scope of this one-hour program. So first of all, for those of you who have asked a question, um, we do um, certainly encourage you to take the information back to treating healthcare team so that you can um, bring those questions back. Sometimes many of you kind of practice asking a question here, so you can take it back to the team anyway, and you have a little bit more informed or you feel a little more confident that these are you're all asking great questions. So these are very valid questions um, to ask your team. Um, and, um, and, then, um, and then I know many of you like to look um, to other resources that are carefully vetted, that are actually um, resources that... Um, that are recommended by the healthcare, by the by the lymphoma community, by the uh, uh, by the cancer community, and so um, you will be getting after today's program um, an evaluation of the program. Um, but it's not it's not just an evaluation. It's also you're going to get all of the um, ref, re, all the resources that you can possibly contact. There's a number of lymphoma resources that you can call. Um, and there's a number of uh, cancer organizations that you can call um, that um, will provide you with um, just additional information if you're wanting to just collect information from credible sources. Um, so these are all respected and credible sources that we're partnering with. So that would be a nice resource for you to all have. Um, also, in concluding the program today, we would not want any one of you to feel you're alone. You're, you're, um, I know there are moments when everyone on this call feels alone, maybe feels alone more often than you would like to. Um, however, um, please be aware that your healthcare team is quite a large team of people, and you now have a larger team. Um, you're connected now to cancer care, but you're also connected to all the other resources that are out there, all the lymphoma researches, uh, resources that are out there for you to connect with. Um, so a lot of other resources and help for you. Um, so um, I want you to hold on to those lists that we send you because that actually can be a, an important lifeline for you. Indeed, I do want to call out to the American Cancer Society. They do have a 24-hour call center, 365 days a year. So that means that in the middle of the night, um, in, in whatever time zone you're in, that you can call them or email them, and they basically will visit their website, and you will have someone to talk to. And the National Cancer Institute also has a live chat feature. You'll be getting that as well. Um, it's a, um, it's a, so that's good for anyone all over the world, in addition to the United States, where you can pose a question and get information. So these are all very credible sites for you to go to, and just to be aware of them as uh, resources for you. Um, we also have a, a lot of programs coming up, um, and you'll be getting information about those. We have a lot of workshops that I think are relevant to all of you. We have one that's called um, Life with Cancer, a guide to getting the best care. It's a five-part series on just about every topic you could imagine, and that might be of interest as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.